0: You're listening to a podcast from the House of Literature in Oslo, presenting adapted versions of lectures and conversations featuring international writers and thinkers. You can find more information about the House and our events on our website. Good afternoon, and welcome to the House of Literature. My name is Andreas Wiese, and it's my honor to welcome you to a special conversation tonight. Daniel Mendelssohn is visiting us to talk about his latest book, a memoir called An Odyssea, or An Odyssey. It's a memoir built on the premise that classical texts, such as Odyssey, are still very relevant to our lives as we live them now. They can be used to teach us on life of man or on the relationship between fathers and sons, between husbands and wives. Daniel Mendelssohn is one of America's finest writers of memoirs and nonfiction. The Guardian has called his writing brilliant, and I wouldn't know how to disagree. He is an essayist, a critic, a columnist, a translator. In his book, The Lost, A Search for Six of Six Million, for Schwönet in the Norwegian Edition, he told the story of the Holocaust through the history of six victims from his own family. In addition to his memoirs, he has written reviews and essays in The New Yorker, the New York Review of Books, The New York Times, The Paris Review, The New Republic. The Harper's Magazine, to name a few. But today he is with us to talk about the Odyssey translated into Norwegian by Knut Ofstadt. And to have this conversation with him, we have Bernard Ellifsen. Bernard writes reviews and criticism. In 2014, he was named Critic of the Year, and for the last nine years he has published in Brother." Please give a warm welcome to Daniel Mendelssohn and Bernard Ellipson. Welcome.
1: Thank you. Is your, uh, is your microphone okay, Daniel?
2: I think. Okay. Yes, it is. Okay. It's
1: good. Good evening. Good call. There was a slight error in the webpage for this event. It says that the interview will take place in English. Uh, but I thought that we would do this as kind of a
2: midterm exam for you, because you're trying to learn Norwegian. Yeah. So, how are no, Well, I think if we do this in norwegian it will be a very short conversation <laughs> or a really, Consisting really mostly of excuse me where is the men's room <laughs> yes.
1: so yeah okay so we'll uh, skip the <laughs> midterms then yeah uh, but i've been wondering why you have this interest in learning norwegian and uh, when i started reading this book it it uh, glows at me because you write about the pleasures of that which is hard to achieve and you write about learning languages, and you write about how this is something you have from your father, I think. Yeah. He, he was a man who appreciated that, was, which was tough, hard, difficult. and
2: Vanskli. Yeah, 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 yeah.
1: <laughs> Seems to run in the family,
2: this. Yeah, my father was a person uh, for various reasons, um, which I try to decipher in this book, who admired difficulty, uh, partly because he had a hard life uh, as a child, uh, and just how hard it was was something I discovered and commemorate in in this memoir. Uh, He grew up in the Depression... His didn't have a lot of money. His father was out of work during the depression sometimes, and I just think between the depression and the Second World War, uh, he was too young to be in it. But he was an adolescent. He had a brother who was flying missions in the Pacific. He had a he developed a tough view of the way the world is, um, and that somehow was alchemized for many reasons into a kind of admiration for difficulty, which he communicated to us because he was very hard on us when we were growing up. And he, had, he elevated himself out of a very humble origin uh, and got an education and went to graduate school and um, had a great admiration for... Discipline. Uh, I think it's one thing that attracted him to mathematics, which was his field. Um, And so I, you know, it's funny the things you realize when you're writing, which $400,000 worth of therapy never made you understand. I always feel I want a refund, Um, uh, which is, you know, you started talking about languages, and the last time I was here a few years ago, I thought, you know, it's so crazy, I'm coming here all the time, I like it here so much, it's silly not to learn this language. And But I went straight to the grammar, right? That's what I enjoy, because I, I can't, you know, I, I know you have to learn how to say where is the bathroom and all of that, but... I love grammar, and I read grammar lo- like a novel. I'm just happy to sit down with the grammar. And I think that comes... It never occurred to me before, and this will seem silly because it's so obvious. That's from my father. And my father, I should say, and you know from reading the book, was a great Latin student as a high school student during the 1940s. And, and you can see why, because you know he has a great uh, admiration for paradigms, lists, mastering structures. It's, everything's about structure. And I never thought about this before, but I think, uh, as I say, it now seems so obvious, but my pleasure in languages, dead languages, as we call them, um, I think <clears throat> in some sense is something I inherited from him. I enjoy the structure of language. Uh, it just seems to make sense to me. And I would also say, because in the very nice introduction they mentioned my criticism and i now i was when i put my second collection of criticism together and so you're reading all of your pieces and seeing which one should go in and which one shouldn't and i realized that i wish my father were alive because i would tell him this so much of the way i think as a critic comes from my father and some i was once an actor friend of mine was talking to me about a theater review i had done and he said you know from your reviews you would never know there were actors in these plays because all you talk about is the structure of the drama and i now can see that all of these things are kind of inheritances you know from my dad he had this and he and and as he liked to say if it's difficult it's worth doing and if it's easy it's not worth doing do you agree to that well i would i would because of my $400,000 worth of therapy, (laughs) maybe put it a little bit differently. I think the things that excite me as a critic, as a reader, as a theater-goer, as a movie watcher, as a television watcher, are complicated. I like things that have complex structures, and I try to write things with complex structures. I write the kinds of books I like to review, basically, (laughs) Um, as I think one does, you're always trying to write the book that you want to read in some sense. And yeah, so I don't think maybe it's not about difficulty, but certainly complexity. And, you know, my father said a wonderful thing to me after my first book came out, which was how I became a parent and sort of unexpectedly. And I, there are flashbacks to my childhood, some of which I repeat in this book, um, And when it came out, I was a little bit worried, because I was sort of hard on him, and I rehearsed some of these difficult moments from my childhood, and and he said a number of things to me. I called him, I was a little bit nervous, and I said, so what do you think? And he said, things are interesting in direct proportion to their complexity. (laughs) And I think I shared that. Mm -hmm. I like things with complicated structures, because as a critic, what I like to do is to Unravel the structure that gives me pleasure. Yeah,
1: and it's a pleasure to read. Uh, but we have to start with the beginning beginning of this book, I think. And it's um, very theref-
2: unhomeric.
1: Yeah. Mm. <laughs> but you actually start with the beginning here, uh, but you you quickly become Homeric too. But um, the beginning of the book, uh, your father says that he wants
2: to sit in on your yeah. seminar. Can you talk a little <laughs> bit about that? Well, so what happened was I was in the, in the, the spring of um, 2011, I was teaching, as I sometimes do for first-year university students, I sometimes teach a whole course for five months on one text. And it's basically a way of teaching them how to read carefully. Well, you need a big text. For five months so I sometimes do the Iliad and I sometimes do the Odyssey so I was teaching the Odyssey my, the, so the classes usually begin the end of January and goes to the end of May the beginning of January just after New Year's my father calls and he said you know you're teaching that course on the Odyssey uh, maybe I should take it <laughs> so so you know, I always like to say I had two reactions. One was not at all surprised because my father was self educated. His parents were working class people, lovely people. They had no education themselves, and he did not grow up in a bookish household. They didn't read books. Um, and so everything he knew about literature, he had taught himself just by being a voracious reader. I mean, he went to university, he went to grad school in mathematics and the high sciences. And so I wasn't surprised, because it was very typical of him, even at the age of 81. That he And I knew that he had a little bit of history with classical epic. He, as I said, had been a star Latin student when he was in high school, and he used to like to tell a story, which I reproduce in the book, which turns out to be a mystery, the the solution to which I only discover late in the book. He had a Latin teacher in high school in New York City who was himself a refugee from Hitler, a sort of threadbare man, and in the second to last year of high school at the very end of the year this teacher was asking the students who wants to go on and do the final year of latin and in the final year of latin you get to read virgil the aeneid and nobody raised their hand and my father you know he was obviously very haunted by this he used to tell this story all the time and he said nobody said a word and you know, And he would say, it was a May day, and you could hear the bees buzzing in the windows of the school, and it was so quiet. And then the, the teacher <coughs> yelled at them, and he said, you are refusing the riches of Virgil. This you will regret. And he did. He did. Uh, I mean, I think the fact that he always, I mean, obviously, I'm a classics, professor and so we talked about these things i think he really regretted it and i sum- i now think that he saw this as an opportunity to sort of recuperate this mistake that he was going to study epic finally and so that didn't surprise me on the other hand i have to say i was very nervous because and there's only one person in this room who knew my father I'm traveling to Norway with my aunt, Karen, who is Norwegian-American, and um, that's my trump card on this trip, <laughs> and um, small letter T, and, um, and uh, she knew him, so she's going to laugh when I tell this. my father, you never wanted to be in an argument with my father, he was like a dog with a bone, <laughs> and... So I was a little nervous because I knew that he was going to start having ideas about Homer. And indeed... He has. And about Odysseus. Yes, so on the first day of class... So we talked before the class began. I said, oh, you know, how do you want to be in the class? Are you going to participate? Are you going to talk? This is, I should say, it was not a lecture class where I stand and talk for 60 minutes. It was a seminar, so it's a bunch of students sitting around a rectangular table, never more than 12, 13, something like that. So I said, are you going to be in the classroom? You want to take, do the homework? I, he said, no, no, I'm just going to sit in the back. I'm not going to say anything. <laughs> <coughs> Excuse me. So on the first day of class, I'm, and the only time I do lecture is the first meeting of the class because I have to do a sort of introduction, blah, blah, blah. Five minutes into the class, my father always sat behind me and to my left, not at the table, which was a passive-aggressive way of forcing me to always acknowledge his presence. So from over here, he says, I don't think he was such a hero. (laughs) He lies. He cheats. He cheats on his wife. He sleeps with all those goddesses. What's so great about him? And that was five minutes. <laughs> and it went on, as you know, for five months. <laughs> um, so that's how it all began. And it turned out, all kidding aside, to be this extraordinary experience because, you know, among many other things, this is a book about teaching because I <clears throat> sort of the backbone of the book is a recreation of the high points of this class. Discussion in which my father invariably interrupted. It was very interesting having my parent as my student. (laughs) Or not really as my student, as a kind of another professor in the room. (laughs) Uh, Because it was pedagogically very useful. You know, normally these are first-year students, so they're a little bit intimidated. And in a class like this, you don't want them to be intimidated. You want them to be talking and lively and active. And so it can be hard at the beginning of a seminar course like this, in any circumstances, but particularly with beginning students, to develop a relationship, to sort of balance the power. You're the professor, but you also want to give them some freedom, blah, blah, blah. So it's hard enough to do without your father <laughs> complaining in the background. and But I did see, although it, I have to say, it could be very irritating at the time. It turned out to be pedagogically very useful because I afterwards reflected that by having this person in the room who was always arguing with me, it gave them the freedom to realize that they didn't have to obey me all the time. They didn't have to please me all the time. And that was very useful. Yeah. And he, he, was, he was a teacher too. <laughs> For right? them. So he, he was
1: a teacher by profession too. So he was your student, your father, and another teacher at the same time. Yeah. And the kinds of questions he asks... Uh, they're of a particular kind i thought They're this no nonsense real life uh, what's about this guy he's not a hero it's yeah. almost like this uh, populist voice sometimes and you have to ch- uh, take this these uh, questions on
2: yeah and i mean he...
1: it was a good good kind of uh, commentary on your uh, on your uh, seminar
2: yes well it's interesting and you know it's... i always say the same thing about this but it's true which is people like us who are literature people the people in this room who are interested in literature you know you sort of make a kind of a passive acceptance of the fact that odysseus is a hero because he's a great storyteller he's a great liar he uses lies and puns and tall tales and Bullshit, basically to conquer his enemies and get his way so we always think oh he's so wonderful but so it was great to have somebody in the room who did is from a totally different way of thinking so here's my father with his sort of rigid mathematical way of thinking as a you know i was just saying to someone, odysseus is all gray areas you know he's always finagling and mushy and my father wants everything to fit into an equation so it was very useful to have this kind of consciousness opposing me because you know what he's right why is this guy supposed to be so great you know for my whole life as a reader of the odyssey and as a lover of the odyssey i you know you get into your groove of thinking about books that you love so you stop making questions asking questions and suddenly I had to answer these... You know, my father was not l- a literary person, but he was very well read. And his questions were good ones. Why should we think this man is heroic, who does lie, who does cheat, who leaves unhappiness and destruction everywhere that he goes? You know, Every new civilization that he encounters is destroyed as a result of his presence. If you read the Odyssey carefully, he leaves behind him a trail of broken hearts... Broken people, death, destruction, blindness, you know. So my father's questions were not, they may have been naive, but they were not stupid. And, and it was good for me, because, you know, when you do teach the same text all the time, you can become lazy. And sometimes it's good to have someone pushing back. Mm. Your conversations
1: with your students, it takes the direction of reading the father-son part of the Odyssey as the most important part of the epic. And um, for this book, that's interesting, of course, because you're standing there, you're talking about a great epic, about the relationship between a father and a son and or the non-relationship between them. And you're standing there with your father over your shoulder, <laughs> uh, who you describe your relationship with as mm-hmm. complicated. And uh, was. That's kind of the origin of this book, I think. But uh, And you couldn't plan that, right? <laughs> Was it just luck that he wanted to go to your Odyssey seminar? Well, or Because
2: this grows together, this, uh, these two tracks. I think, you know, if you're a memoirist, there's no such thing as just luck. Had you been cajoling him into... Well, no, no, the, no. <laughs> but, I mean, you you just take what happens and you make it look like it was inevitable I mean that's what you do as a writer you do that anyway as a writer but with a memoirist it's always interesting so you know some of you read my Holocaust memoir right? and so people said oh the most amazing things happened to you that's why you had a book and I said nothing more amazing happened to me than happened to anybody else but I think of it as a narrative and if you're not a writer you don't think of it as a narrative Or rather, if you don't go out looking for a story, nothing's going to happen. So if you're already thinking about things as potential stories. So somebody asked me last night in Trondheim, well, what if you had been teaching a course on the Iliad? Would you have been able to write a book? And I said, yeah, it just would have been a different book. You know, so I think as particularly if you're in nonfiction and as a narrative nonfiction person, you know, life gives you material. Yep. The question is you make it seem novelistic, so to speak, but it really happened. Well, look, this all comes so if you read The Lost Vorschwunit, you know that my mother's father was a great Odysseus type, actually, a liar a manipulator of stories, a manipulator of people, a ladies' man, actually. No wonder I'm in this business. And um, <laughs> and we used to have a joke about him in my family. Karen, did you ever meet my grandfather? I can't remember. So we used to have a joke. I think I probably told this joke the last time I was here talking about that book, but... <laughs> That if you go to the grocery store to buy a quart of milk, you would come home with a quart of milk. But if grandpa went to the grocery store to buy a quart of milk, he would come back with the milk. But also, amazingly, he would meet his best friend from childhood and his second wife. And he would win the lottery and the most amazing thing. And then, you know... I was 40 before I realized he was lying, but it didn't matter <laughs> because he could take any little thing and turn it into a great story. So, to some extent, you know, it, it seems overdetermined. Mm-hmm. I'm teaching the Odyssey, which is a poem that is very interested in father and son relationships, and my father is in the class. But another way of saying this is, and this is true. I don't think I would have noticed how much the Odyssey is about fathers and sons before my father was sitting there every week for two and a half hours. That, I can tell you, is true. And, in fact, as I always like to point out, people who know anything about the Odyssey, even it's from Brad Pitt movies, you know, or whatever, popular culture, comics, but they have some idea that it's about this hero from a war and the war went on ten years and now he takes ten years and he's trying to get home to his wife. And that's what they know. It's about a, a, a marriage and how they finally recognize each other. But because Daddy was sitting there, I, you know, obviously, I'm thinking... <laughs> wow, there is so much more in this poem about Odysseus and his relationship with his son whom he left as a baby and now he has to get to know this young man that he did know and the son has to know the father who he, he only has heard about and then as you know, the poem does not end with the reunion of, with the wife, which everyone thinks it does. It actually has one more chapter where he goes to find his elderly father, who's now an ancient, broken-down old man. So, but I never noticed that before. Mm-hmm. So, you know, life makes your stories. The question is, are you going to write them? I write them. And in Homer, the
1: relationship between son and father is, uh, it seems a warm. Affectionate—it's a lot of tears. It's the deep sense of uh, finding, finding back to his son, finding his father again. It's not—it's not, it's not uh, what you find in uh, Sophocles. It's—it's—it's uh, <laughs> it's, it's another Hopefully. kind. Of, yeah, it's—it's it's this—it's um, uh, this warmth, and you sense in your book that uh, what what uh, Telemachus learns about his father and. Um, and they're getting closer and closer in the story uh, that
2: parallels your experience with your father this spring. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, so as I did in The Lost, I'm twining this personal narrative around a series of readings of this ancient text, and I'm heavily underscoring the parallels. So... The Odyssey begins with this young man who never knew his father because he's been away for 20 years looking for him. He decides or is pushed to go on a series of trips to interview these old, now old heroes from the Trojan War. What happened to my father? Is he alive? When was the last time you saw him? And, you know, I myself did not have a close relationship to my father for the first 20-something years of my life either. not It wasn't terrible, but it just wasn't much because I was a little bit afraid of him. He was a kind of stern figure. And so I'm making a kind of obvious parallel. My book begins with a series of flashbacks to my childhood, and, and so it's me looking for my father. And then, of course, the two meet, and they have to get to know each other, which is both warm and a little bit uncomfortable. And Homer, again, I never realized how smart Homer is about families. You know, we have these intimacies which we sort of take for granted or we think we have to have because there are family members, but it's not always easy to negotiate that. You're not always sure how to act with these people. So I'm trying to sort of reproduce that. And then we came together, you know, as Odysseus and Telemachus do. So finally he gets home, he is reunited with the son, they get to know each other, and then they have to kill 108 people, as one does, uh, in a family reunion, uh, uh, these men who are trying to marry his mother because they think the father is long dead. And so my father and I also, after a long <laughs> estrangement, we didn't kill 108 people, but you went on we cruise had a instead. great adventure. We <laughs> yeah. had a great adventure. We went on this cruise that recreated supposedly the voyages of Odysseus. So I'm I'm you know, I'm always trying to remind my readers in these personal narratives, because I'm always twining them around thinking about ancient texts, that these texts are living. They're about real life. They're not just some fancy thing to impress people at cocktail parties, you know and on this cruise uh, or
1: this grand voyage across the mediterranean uh, where you as 21st century people go on a cruise instead of killing people um, uh, you have this moment of recognition where you i think see your father as a father and that's when you are going into calypso's cave right and it's this i think it's a beautiful scene and and i to me it was The recognition, you saw him for the first time, probably as a father, really. Not your father
2: or the father, but as that father. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit about this situation? So what happened was, so you go on this cruise. It's 10 days, one day for each year that Odysseus has his adventures. (laughs) And one of the places that you stop is this island off Malta called Gyozo. And on this island, there is a cave, which is traditionally, it's said to be the cave where Calypso lived. Calypso is this beautiful goddess who falls in love with Odysseus and won't let him go home. She holds him hostage for seven years. Although Homer tells us every night she forced him to make love. And my students always have a problem with that. They say, how bad was it? You LAUGHTER know. um, But it's funny, actually, because, you know, because actually it was bad, because every day, Homer says, he goes, sits on the seashore crying, looking in the direction of his home, wishing he were home. My father didn't like that. He didn't like that he cries. He said, I was in the army. Nobody cried. You know. Um, So... (laughs) So we're going. So so in Homer, there's a very elaborate description of this cave, which has an obvious symbolic value. It's, It's hidden. It's surrounded by dense vegetation. So, and the name Calypso in Greek means hide. The one who hides somebody. So he's being hidden. He can't get back to his life. He's being hidden away. I'm very claustrophobic. As also, I realize this is also the climax of both of my <laughs> recent books are about claustrophobia. I just realized that. Maybe the 400,000 dollars was worth it. Um, <laughs> I'm very claustrophobic, and so I thought when he's, they said, "Oh, we're going to go to Calypso's Cave. it's some big cavern, you know." And we go to the place, we leave the ship, we go on the minibus, and we get off, and I started sweating because there's an entrance this big, this wide. And I said to my father, I'm not going. You go, and I'll wait. And he got very incensed. He said, you came all this way, we're going. And I said, no, we're not going. And then he said this, he justifies it by saying, how could you do this? Seven-tenths of the Odyssey takes place in this cave. (laughs) And I said, what are you talking about? He said, well, he's away for 10 years. Seven is in Calypso's cave. Ergo, seven-tenths of the odd... I said, doesn't really work like that. (laughs) So then he did this very charming thing. He took me by the hand. He held my hand, which he hadn't done since 1965. and, And it made me really feel better, I have to say. So we go into the cave, and I'm there for 30 seconds, and it's terrible, and I run out. <laughs> but he, was, he said, you did it. See, you did it. It was hard, but it, you did it. <laughs> but the really sweet thing was that night, so I should say that after a couple of days, a certain group of passengers, about eight or nine of us, we sort of got along and we had every night we would gather after dinner in the ship's lounge there was a piano and a bar and a pianist playing my father's favorite music George Gershwin and Cole Porter and and he would request songs and sing along which just was (laughs) shocking to me and uh Actually, it reminds me of a funny story. My father said in public schools in New York City in the 30s and 40s, at the beginning of each year, they would make the children sing. And if you didn't have a good voice, you weren't a singer. You weren't allowed to sing anymore. And he said I was not a singer. Um, So that night, the cruise director, to whom I had earlier confided that I was not so sure I wanted to go into a cave... She said, so, how was it? Did you survive? And everyone said, what do you mean, did you survive? Because they didn't know I was so terrified. And my father interrupted. And he said, well, you know, I'm old and I'm not steady on my feet, so Daniel held my hand (laughs) and helped me into the cave. And that was really charming. And touching and uh, so the point of the story is that when you're thinking about parallels between life and this text this is a famous text about adventuring and going to new places and meeting new kinds of beings and monsters and strange new civilizations that you know when you travel you change it changes you just the fact of going somewhere makes you into a different person right that's why you send your children for a year to a university somewhere else or whatever and my father was changed or maybe not changed but there was something about this voyage that allowed him to relax into a version of himself you know my father had always wanted to travel because he had a very curious mind and i think he would have really liked to travel but my mother doesn't like to travel so they didn't go anywhere and i actually this was the last of our travels together but in fact about 10 years ago when i started going a lot on book tours in different countries and international literary festivals and things i started taking my father everywhere so actually we went a lot of places together south africa jerusalem paris all over the place and he loved it because he had been reading his whole life, but he never saw any of these places. So he was like a kid in a toy store. He was so excited. Um, and I think that just he, it, it was rather poignant to see like a version of him that could have been if life had been a little bit different, you know. And I remember being a little bit bitter actually one night. Because here he was and we were at the lounge and he asked the piano player to play Over the Rainbow and he was rem- reminiscing about the week that The Wizard of Oz came out in 1939 and how his father was home from a job and he took him to Radio City Music Hall for the grand opening and an organ came out of the floor and Judy Garland was there in person. You know... And he just became so relaxed. He became a little more Odysseus-like, if I may say. You know, he was enjoying telling stories, reminiscing. He had his martini. He was singing in his bad voice. And, <laughs> and it, it made me think of something that the Odyssey is very much preoccupied, which is how many identities do we really have? You know, as you know, if you read the Odyssey, a great question hangs at the end of the poem. He's been away so long, he's different you know as i always like to say anyone who has gone to a high school reunion knows this (laughs) problem you know somebody comes up to you and says it's me and you're like who are you you know and so it has this great question how will the husband and wife identify each other in the days before (laughs) driver's licenses and you know and a, it, the poem is very much concerned with identity. How do you create an identity? And clearly one answer is through narrative. He tells stories. That's how we, we remember who we are. It's very sophisticated on this subject. And, and Odysseus, of course, has a problem, which is a f- actually a famous logical problem. When you study logic, if you are a very good liar, how do you prove who you are, right? Right? And he has this problem at the end, and the husband and wife are testing each other in a very funny, interesting way. And I just, I'm saying this because I suddenly saw that, you know, with one's parents, one always sees them as the parents. And if you're lucky in life, you may get an opportunity, a little adventure like I had, where you suddenly see your parents as other people see them. Because I thought, you know, here are these people on the cruise, and every night we're at the bar, and he's so charming and reminiscent and delightful. And that's the only Jay Mendelssohn that these people will ever know. I would have liked to have that guy. Then <laughs> I think our lives would have been a lot different if that person had shown himself more. But he didn't get to until late in life. And that's just part of life. Things happen when they happen.
1: You're interested in stories and what they're about, but you're even more interested, I think, in how they're told, in their form, in their structure, as you actually said earlier. And with the, with the Odyssey, you write a lot about uh, the ring composition that uh, Homer applies. And you write about also other kinds of structures that are similar. You write about circles. You write about returns. You write, write about nostalgia um, and you you use the ring composition yourself in the book, and this seems to be more than just a trick, more, more than just a technique, and it is for Homer, and it seems to be for you too. Can you?
2: Well, I think ring... So ring composition is the technical term for a narrative technique, which is, actually, it's not that complicated, which is exemplified very famously in literary studies by a certain scene in the Odyssey which I will very quickly rehearse so he finally gets back home and he's planning to recapture his own palace which has been occupied by these guys trying to marry his wife so he has to go incognito he's disguised and he Gradually moves from the seashore closer through the countryside closer and closer to his palace testing the old servants to see if they're loyal and finally he gets into his palace he's still disguised as an old bum and as a matter of traditional hospitality at a certain point he's given a bath by a old maid this is a very typical part of bronze age politesse and while she's bathing him She's The beggar, she sees on the leg a scar, which is a very famous scar that Odysseus has that everybody knows about. So she recognizes him. She, she's about to cry out, it's Odysseus. And he claps his man, hand over her mouth because he needs to remain in disguise. At that moment, the story comes to a complete halt. And Homer says, well, now I'm going to tell you how he got the scar. When he was 17, he went on a hunt and they were hunting for boar. And he was too bold and he jumped, ahead, he ran ahead of the rest of the group, and the boar came out and gored him. So that's the first ring. The narrative stops and it circles back in time to explain something that's happening in the present. Then he stops that circle and he goes to another circle he says now you're probably wondering why was he on this boar hunt with his uncles and his grandfather well when he was born the grandfather blah 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 blah, blah. that's ring composition and then the narrator thinks of a way to come back to the second point the boar hunt and finally gets back to the foot in the bathtub as you may know, we now think that both the Iliad and the Odyssey, well, it's like sagas, right? To come, The word for epic in Greek is epos, which means to talk, to say a word, right? So it's like the same thing. It's, we think these began as people telling stories orally, and then finally someone put them together and wrote them down. But that way of talking is a very... That way of composing, which seems so structurally sophisticated, it's actually very natural when you're telling a story. You stop yourself to explain something, who someone was, and then you have to explain that, blah, blah, blah. So I use this, actually, in all my books, just because to me it seems a very natural. If you're a memoirist, you're always thinking about how the past affects the present. That's what you're writing about. And this is a technique that allows you in one embrace to have the past and the present in practically the same sentence sometimes, you know. And so for me, it's it's a very natural way. I don't really think about it when I'm writing. I just sort of, my eyes roll up in my head and I just start going. I think it has a kind of rhythm that I'm very interested in. Um, It's also, as if you read The Lost, you know it's how my grandfather told stories. (coughs) You know and but that 's not because he studied homer it 's because he was a good storyteller right mm-hmm. it 's just a naturally useful way to tell a story uh, When I read your criticism and your books
1: uh, i 'm still struck by how interested you are in narrative structure, and um, you seem to give it a kind of significance or explanatory power. Uh, When you write about John F. Kennedy or the Titanic or cultural phenomena, you you use the classics or old narrative structures to shed light on cultural stories. In this book, you do the same with personal stories Mm -hmm. and with identity. Uh, And sometimes I wonder if you think that uh, art imitates life or vice versa. What comes first, the classics or life? Is this, some, is this the repertoire we used to think? Or is it more of a... We recognize ourselves in these texts.
2: Well, I think it's, a, you know, it's like... If you put two mirrors facing each other... I think it <laughs> opens up an infinity. And I think that's the relationship between life and myth. I would say that's the relationship between life and literature. It, it's not which one comes from the other they 're endlessly mirroring each other, and I believe that we internalize as products say of European culture or Western culture. We internalize these stories quite early on, so then when things happen in life, they seem inevitable because they 're following some pattern but i don 't i don't know if we act that way or we think about life that way because we've heard these stories so when things echo these stories they seem right and i'll give you an example since you mentioned i have to say that so my book came out about a month ago in the states and there was a wonderful (laughs) review in the new york times (laughs) but the reviewer said you know this is such a great use of the classics. Sometimes Mendelssohn goes overboard, always comparing <laughs> things to the classics. He said if he had to review a restaurant, he would say the, the breadsticks remind him of the oars of a Greek ship, you know. <laughs> it was very funny. Um, but I do think, you know, most of the time, I'm right. Uh, and so I was writing this article uh, five years ago now, uh, for the hundredth anniversary of the sinking of the Titanic. And, you know, I was trying to think as a cultural critic, you know, why is this such a compelling story that we can't, at least in the States, I mean, it's it's just a huge thing in popular culture. You can't stop thinking about this, something about this story which is so irresistible. The other ship sank. The Lusitania sank. But nobody's <laughs> making movies and, you know... Blockbusters and writing songs, and you know, this, there was a Broadway musical about the time. And I got to thinking, and I said, Well, you know, because it's mythic, right? It, it's so resonant. The most obvious one is you know, you challenge the gods, right? You say, I'm gonna, you know, if you've read Greek tragedy, you know this. You say, I'm gonna build a boat that can't sink, <laughs> you're in trouble, right? But even, I would say, you know, there's probably some culture, you know, we have, like we say of somebody who's too proud or too grand, you know, and something bad happens to them. You say, well, he had it coming, right? To say that is to think mythically. There's no reason. That's not true (laughs) in a random universe, right? But we need to think that there's a narrative that makes sense Of a random piece of bad luck. So we say, well, he was too a little too fancy, and so he had to be come down a little bit. Well, so that's what the Titanic is about. (laughs) But also it's about and I started thinking the idea of the maiden voyage, the maiden voyage that never gets to complete the maiden voyage. And you know, there's a whole strand of myth about virgin sacrifices, that the best sacrifice is a virgin, right? This is a deep part of Western. Anthropology and, and religion, right? So the, it's better because it was the first voyage, right? That was never completed. We're haunted by that, that idea of a kind of perfection that's maintained because it's never completed. You know, so this is how we think. We think mythically. And I think that that's what I think about all the time. Maybe too much, but I'd rather do it than not do it you know i'm very interested in this the way that that works out and so you mentioned also i wrote this piece about jfk for the 50th anniversary you know why is this thing so potent you know for many of the same reasons it's a hero story it's the it's it's the Iliad, it's the prince of the city who's cut down with the beautiful wife and the little baby. That's book six of the Iliad. We've read this story for 2,000 years. And when things have a kind of force like that, there's a reason, it's not accidental. Mm. But what about in your own life and the form of myth? That's what this
1: book is about. You take, yeah, take the same kind of idea and move it into your...
2: Every person in this room yeah. could do this. I, I guarantee I you, and I won't, I won't charge you $400,000. Um, no, I, I, I disagree with you. I think every person in this room... Had, you know why? Because you have parents. That's the beginning. You know, you want myth? I'll give you myth. <laughs> we know what it's like, right? You grew up with these gods and they're everything and they're powerful and then you realize they're not so powerful and then they're you know all of these things are recapit every relationship is mythic you know that's what myths are about so i'm not so sure again it's like what people told me about the loss well your family was so interesting no actually they weren't i just decided that there was a story you know i i really believe we lead mythic lives that's why we like myths they seem to be universalizing something we know about. It's always you have siblings, I've got Cain and Abel, you know. You have mothers, I've got Medea, you know.
1: I mean, obviously. <laughs> oh my god.
2: <laughs> these are Please bring another mother. <laughs> well we also have comedy, we also have happy myths, we yeah. also have the Odyssey, which has a happy ending, right? with a little kind of a crypto marriage. The husband and wife are reunited, they go to bed together. You know, it's not all doom and gloom, (laughs) right? We have uh, ten short minutes
1: left, and I think we're going to see if there are any questions from you. If we can see you past the lights. Thanks.
2: Anyone have any questions? I keep expecting my father to... <laughs> I keep finding myself... Yeah. Is that why you're... Like, you Dad? Sitting, have you, have you, you, you Have you started sitting closer to the wall now? Yeah, Just i to be keeping my back to the wall. Yeah. Right, Exactly. Yeah. Yeah? Um, the way you talk
0: about... Thank you. Um, I find the way that you write about words and etymology very interesting... And could you say something about how etymology fits into the way you were talking about myth and how myth creates stories and how yeah. this etymology seems to also create your stories?
2: Well, I think that, so we were talking before about structure and my interest in grammar. So the, the, you know, the deepest way you can go if you're interested in these resonances of older cultures or different cultures, is looking at the roots, the roots of words. Um, and I uh, actually, we were talking before this began, and Bernhard had chosen a passage that we thought, if things were getting a little boring, I'll read the <laughs> passage. <to laughs> I find it now because is. it was the no, perfect I'm answer kidding. to the question. I'm kidding, and it was exactly <laughs> that passage where I'm yeah. talking about the, in English. Yeah. Actually, sort of interesting to see how they translated it. Um, in English the word there is, we have so many different words for traveling voyage journey travel and and I talk about each one because I'm every word in every language is like a rock with a diamond inside and and learning the language gives you the x-ray vision to see the diamond right and lurking behind every word is a history And so I talk about the history of the word odyssey. So now in every language we say, oh, it was an odyssey. You know, I went on this trip and we lost our passport and blah, blah, blah. It was an (laughs) odyssey. And I talk about the word odyssey, which actually, of course, is a word that comes from the name of Odysseus, right? It's a poem. The odyssey is a poem about Odysseus. But actually in Greek, the root... Actually, remember I was telling you about the loops and the scar... Actually, the f- earliest point in those series of stories explains what the name of Odysseus means, and it comes from the word for pain. He's the person who <clears throat> suffers pain, trying to get home, and also causes pain. This is where the dark side comes in. He also causes pain. So I love looking at language that way because it's it's so interesting. You know, the the older Periods in the history of a culture are hiding, as it were, you know, behind every word. And that's why I love learning languages. It's so interesting to see the way there. You know, it's like these palimpsests. There's the word, but there's an earlier version of the word and an earlier version. And, I, and that's why I took a risk. You know, I was a little worried about this section of the book where I paused to think about how did we get the word journey actually very interesting it has to do with the word for day right that's as much as you would travel in ancient times you would travel while the light was good right how do we get the word voyage how do we get the word travel which actually comes from a very terrible word in latin it's an instrument of torture and i thought well some some cruises are like that you know um so i think this is very interesting and i think I think people are interested in this. You know, I, I, I always think it's a mistake to underestimate the intellect of the general readership. I, I think people are interested in things if you explain them in a fun way. It's like, well, it's like teaching, right? So I think this stuff about etymology is super interesting, and I think I'm going to take a risk and... You know, go down that rabbit hole, and I think people are interested in it too. Um, so I'm interested in the way that histories lurk in words, and sometimes in a very interesting way. At dinner last night in Trondheim, I was writing on a napkin from my aunt Karen the the fact that in English, and I think it also works in Norwegian. The word for bread is actually connected to the word for mortal. To be mortal, to be a person who, to be someone who's going to die eventually. They come from the ultimately from the same. The MRT in mortal is the same as the BRD in bread. It's practically the same, right, in your life, which comes from a very ancient root that means death. If you have to eat, you're going to die. It means you're a living organism, right? I think these things are so interesting, and I just think, why not share that with people, you know? <laughs> it made it a little depressing at dinner. <laughs> <laughs> it starts at breakfast. As we were yeah. eating the bread, yeah. you know, this only goes in one direction. Two loaves of death. <laughs> okay. Tschüssentag ja? Daniel. Yeah? Thanks.